Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. But there's a lot of uh, things going on in our readings today. The wooden vessels that St. Paul speaks about actually inspired the pulpit. And if you see and ever come close to the pulpit, you'll see on each of the sides there are these wooden vessels that hold symbols of the different covenants from the Old Testament. But uh, this was not planned. However, God is obviously in this because the theme of our creative arts camp, um, which will be taking place at the end of June, is the giant. And uh, if you know anything about our creative arts camp, we have over a hundred kids from the neighborhood and our parish that are going to come through and learn about the great story of the giant. However, that David and Goliath part is just a small bit of it. Uh, the themes and the lessons from the, th- the entire week will come from 1 Samuel, which happens to be our Old Testament lessons this month in June. I am not that organized to put that together. And so, uh, so it's really exciting. So as we read through 1 Samuel uh, this month of June, I want to encourage you to pray for um, the artists that have been working so hard uh, throughout the, the spring to get this place ready. Um, I want to encourage you to pray for the kids and the families and the staff. Uh, and that people's hearts would be converted, and that the gospel through the book of Samuel would, uh, would uh, hit the hearts of the people who come at the end of the month. So I thought, why not? Let's preach on uh, the book of Samuel. And uh, chapter 3, there are two significant religious figures that are uh, brought up here. Uh, you have Samuel and Eli. Now, Samuel, who was Samuel? Well, Samuel was the miracle child of a barren woman named Hannah. And do you remember Hannah? She wanted a child so bad, uh, um, and, uh, and so she made a vow to God that if he gave her a son, she would commit him to the Lord, and she would make him a Nazarite. And the Nazarite, these were the ones who were set apart for God, and their vow involved abstaining from any alcohol. There was no cutting of the hair, and they were uh, to avoid touching the dead. Um, in uh, the book of Numbers and Leviticus, it tells us that so that they might be clean, ritually clean for the appointed purpose when they would be used by God. And in chapter 3, Samuel is Eli's assistant. And probably the most famous Old Testament Nazarite that you might know of is Samson. Remember Samson and his long hair. But so here we are, Samuel is born and he is set aside for the work. And he is now, to put it in our vernacular, he is Eli's curate. And so, and uh, Eli was the rector of the congregation. He is the current prophet, the spiritual leader of Israel. And Eli, if you've read the first two chapters, had two sons. And the Bible tells us that Eli's two sons were also clergy. Uh, They were, though, to quote the Bible, this isn't Jacob, to quote the Bible, they were worthless and corrupt men. And Eli could not, nor would he not, discipline his sons. And so in chapter 3, the faith of Israel is bad. It is bad. So bad that Samuel, not yet a prophet, it tells us that he's in the temple ministering to the Lord. What that is, is he's performing the sacrifices and the rituals. He's in there uh, doing this. However, the implication is, is that he's just going through the motions. Because verse 7 tells us, as Samuel did not know the Lord yet, and the word of the Lord had not been received by him. 
The corruption of the day is summed up when the author writes, the word of the Lord was actually rare in those days and visions were not widespread. Now, when you read the book of Samuel, uh, especially 1 Samuel, there are significant shifts that take place both spiritually and politically in the life of Israel. And chapter 3 is one of the key spiritual shifts from the favor of God, the anointing of God leaving Eli and resting upon Samuel. And one of the big lessons that comes out of chapter 3 is that faithfulness and religion do not technically correspond. Let me say that again. Faithfulness and religion do not technically correspond. And we can all see that today, can't we? With all of the scandals that have rocked the churches of recent, you know, the cases of pedophilia, the infidelities of ministers, the mishandling and the misteaching of the scriptures and the mishandling and the misteachings of the rites and the sacraments of the church, And scandals, they've rocked the church, and fighting has rocked the church brought on by faithless men and women. Vestments, the title reverend and pastor, does not necessarily connect with God's presence. However, despite it all, God is always at work. The rector emeritus Tom Pike was telling Ben and I, about a time when someone who obviously had been burned deeply by the church and had a problem with Christianity made the statement, with all the corruption in the church, it's a wonder that this thing still exists. To which Tom brilliantly responded, and if you know Tom, he's loaded with all of these one-liners that he just kind of zings at you all of a sudden. But he said, said, in the midst of faithlessness, God is always sowing the seeds of his faithfulness for renewal. That should be a bumper sticker. And, um, but, but, uh, but the author of 1 Samuel would agree with this. Because when you read the opening, uh, the opening ch- parts of chapter 3, you see Eli is going blind. But in the midst of all of this corruption and faithlessness, the author writes, The lamp of God. This was the representation, the very presence of God in the tabernacle. And it says, The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And this is my first point. When we and our piety is faithless, when we and our piety are just clanging symbols, as St. Paul writes, God is always faithful. What the history books of the Old Testament, like 1 Samuel, declare, indeed what the entire Bible, for that matter, proclaims, is that we are not the ones calling the shots, and thank God for that. Instead, despite ourselves and our corruption, God is the one who has declared, let light shine out of darkness. And he is still and is always at work to bring about his purpose, namely the salvation of the world, namely the salvation of you and I through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in this situation, chapter 3, You know, we think of it as cute. But into this situation, this is a mess. And God begins to call Samuel. And while Samuel does not know God, and while you may be going through all the motions and not know God, 
One of the powerful lessons here is that God knows Samuel. And God knows you. And three times God calls out to Samuel. And Samuel thinks it's his boss, Eli. However, Eli senses something is going on. And he says, if you hear the call again, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The prophet talking to the assistant here. And this is important. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We're always so busy looking for God, and you have Plato to thank for that, not the Bible. And primarily, we're looking for God so that we can find God on our own terms. We're looking for God in sunsets. We're looking for God in nature. We're looking for God in the face of a child. And what that is, is that is sentimentality. That's not biblical. It makes God into an abstraction. However, God is a person. And the God of the Bible is not to be looked upon, for his holiness would eviscerate you. Uh, Instead, he is a God who you don't see. He is hidden, and so therefore he must speak. And he speaks so that you will hear him. He speaks so that there might be no second guessing. And we believe that the Bible teaches that God speaks to us in two words, law and gospel, and that these two words need to be properly distinguished. They can't be muddled. They're always getting muddled, but when they're muddled, Christianity loses its power and its proclamation. And so law, what is that? Law is the revelation of God's righteousness manifested and culminated ultimately in the Ten Commandments. And so it always comes to us as an accusation. It always comes to us as a word of judgment. And then you have the second word, gospel, which declares to us all has been done. But Samuel, he goes and he hears and he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God speaks a word. A word of heavy judgment. This is God announcing the spiritual shift is taking place. That he is ending Eli's house for their blasphemy. And that Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Or in other words, Eli's house can never on their own terms make amends for the wrong they have done. How would you like to be the assistant and get that word? That is a rough word. And I love how earthy and real this passage is because the author tells us Samuel is afraid. He's afraid to tell Eli. I mean, can you imagine? Eli's like, what did he say? What did he say? And he's like, well, uh, the word from the Lord for you last night is you're going to die. What's for breakfast? You know, I mean, this is Merry Christmas. So uh, I thought that was really funny. But anyway, um, but the word to Eli is rough. And because it's so rough, we want to distinguish ourselves from the house of Eli. But never forget, we are of the same nature as that house. I'm not talking about you, but speaking personally, the house 
of Smith, except for Melina and my kids, I'm talking about Jacob, is riddled with sin. And, my, uh, and on my own, I can never make amends for the wrongs I have done before God. And neither can you. Neither can you. That is the law preached at its highest pitch. Neither can you. And this is my second point. Like God himself, God's law is not an abstraction either. It demands total devotion. It demands total perfection. And judges not only your bad deeds on that scale, but your good deeds as well. And when the law is rightly encountered, at its highest pitch, it exposes a deep wound in us all. And that deep wound is called sin. And as St. Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And like the house of Eli, you and your offerings and me and my offerings and sacrifices on their own cannot make expiation. They cannot make amends for the wrongs I have done. So in this passage... By the end of the chapter, the shift has occurred. And if you read, the roles have been reversed. Samuel is now the prophet. Samuel is the one who is speaking. And Samuel is the one who speaks the first word, law. And the last line of our reading makes it clear that there was no doubt from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south that there was a prophet now in the land of Israel. And as one continues to read through the book of Samuel, and and I mean it reads like a powerful drama, but as one continues to read, we read that the prophet Samuel, don't forget a Nazarite, would now oversee the political shifts that would occur in the theocracy of Israel. And he would oversee the change from the judges. These were men and women. These were like warlords who led Israel through great battles. He's now seen Israel through the shift from the judges to a monarchy with her first king, Saul. And as you read about Saul, he is a powerful and very proud king. And Samuel eventually would have to step to Saul. And he drops the law on Saul and announces that God has removed his favor and anointing off of Saul. But that favor and that royal anointing would fall upon another. A scrawny little shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah named David who despite his many iniquities, God, and you read these iniquities and the ramifications just run throughout the rest of Israel's history. But in the midst of all of this faithlessness, God is still faithful to his people. And he's working through the whole mess. And God would promise that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And through David's line, according to St. Matthew, 28 generations later, would come great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, 
who was also preceded by a Nazarite prophet, born to a barren woman named Elizabeth, named John the Baptist. And you would have never invited John the Baptist to your house for dinner because he was a tough guy. And he brought the hard word of the law to those who trusted in their own righteousness. And when he baptized Jesus, David's greater son, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit as well, not just as the King of Kings, but as God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And this King Jesus is God's word in the flesh. And he brings to us that second word, the good news of the gospel. God's second word, which says, despite your iniquities which says, though your sin be great and your works can never please God, the second word of the gospel says, your sins are forgiven. The second word of the gospel says, you have been made righteous and holy because Jesus in his death and resurrection becomes your expiation the perfect and pleasing offering to God, for which Eli's house, for which our house could not make. And now, because he is the perfect, pleasing offering, the atoning sacrifice, we become living sacrifices for the sake of our neighbor. And this is my third point. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. If you want to hear God clearly, don't go to the beach. Don't go to a sunset. If you want to hear God clearly speak today, you go to his word. If you want to hear God speak clearly today, don't go inward to simply your feelings. Allow the Holy Spirit to pull you up outside of yourself to those places where he has placed his name. In your baptism where in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God declares to you that you are saved and that you have been buried in a death like his and therefore you will be raised in a resurrection like his. You go and you gather around this table where in ordinary things like bread and wine, God declares to you, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. There is nothing abstract about that. Hearing and knowing God is not a human accomplishment. Rather, it is a divine disclosure And when you know God as Jesus, then you know God as Father. And when you know God as Jesus, the Word made flesh, when you truly have encountered him, there is peace. And while listening for him to speak, you may not get the answer you were looking for. You will always get the answer you need. And that word will come across to you. And it will say, I love you. You will hear him say, by the power of his spirit, I will never leave you or forsake you. In the midst of your faithlessness, I am faithful. And most importantly, you are forgiven. Two words, law and gospel. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.